0: I think most of you know me, but if you don't, my name is Aaron Campbell, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. The Rawlings family, like many others, are traveling this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter one. Being as day after Christmas, I, I thought we need not stray too far, either from the theme of Christmas or family, and we're actually going to explore a little further the theme that Matt highlighted on Christmas Eve when he talked about the faithful one coming for the unfaithful. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's begin reading in Matthew 1, beginning with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Jacob, oh, and then let's skip down to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." There are four gospel accounts. Four accounts of the life of Christ in the New Testament. But only two of them, Matthew and Luke, include a birth narrative. Give the start of the story of Jesus' life. And only Matthew begins his narrative, his account of Christ's life, with a genealogy. Now you might be thinking, that's good because genealogies are boring. But That's often due to the fact that important details tend uh, to get skipped over in our ears because while this was written for us, it wasn't written to us. We weren't the original audience. It was for people halfway around the world a couple thousand years ago. It was written to Jews in the Middle East by a Jew named Matthew. But if we keep them in view and seek to see through their lens, we can benefit from it as well, as it was intended for us as well. Writing primarily to Jews, Matthew, in his gospel, he contains details throughout his letter of things like genealogies, things that would be important to Jews asking questions, and Old Testament prophecies. Again and again we see how he talks about Jesus fulfilled a particular prophecy or fulfilled a particular scripture. He, in this part of what we're reading, these first few verses of his, um, of his letter, uh, he, he gives and establishes Jesus bona fides, his resume, if you will. He begins by talking about Jesus' lineage, beginning with Abraham through David. Now he continues on all the way to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. But it's important, he has a very particular reason that he's bringing up these two main characters. In fact, he highlights them at the beginning when he says, this is the book of Genesis, Of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He's wanting to bring these two individuals to the forefront because any Jew would be asking the question: if this person is who you say he is, if he is God's Christ, his Messiah, then there's certain things I know, certain requirements that he needs to meet. And it begins just with the basics of you need to be able to show that he's from the line of Abraham. There needs to be a clear line. Because if he's not, well, then this is a non-starter. If he's to be the Christ from, uh, that was promised um, to be a blessing to all the nations through Abraham, I need to see that that is actually true in his lineage. And every Jew knew as well that the, the long-awaited Messiah was prophesied to be the son of David. It was promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. So Matthew's genealogy begins by highlighting that Jesus had the right bloodline. But curiously, Matthew also pauses along the journey with surprising detours that informed his original readers that his account would be entirely different than what they were expecting. See, Matthew isn't writing a fairy tale. He isn't beginning with once upon a time. He is relaying history. He's relaying things that really happened. But he's also an author who has a particular message, and he is crafting that message as he writes for the benefit of, of his readers. You see, if we look really closely at all these names and compare them with lists that we have in books like the Chronicles of the Kings, we'll see that not every name that is mentioned there is mentioned in this genealogy. He's somewhat selective in who he includes. And at the same time that he has omitted some names from the genealogy, He also includes some names that have no natural place in this type of account by the standards of the time. That's where we're going to focus this morning. See, it was a common practice of the day to selectively shape genealogies of kings and rulers in order to put their lineage in the best possible light. Uh, They would highlight their connection with famous kings or valiant warriors While they would often expunge the records of uh, their ancestors or even their own children who had questionable reputations because they didn't want to be brought in by association to that which might tarnish their reputation. So, Matthew's original readers might have been shocked At the particular portions of history, he causes them to linger on. Ones it would seem desirable not to bring up at all, especially in a a resume of the person that you are claiming to be God's Christ or Messiah. See, what Matthew is doing is setting the stage for his account of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. He had a front-row front row seat as one of the twelve disciples whom Jesus called to follow him during his earthly ministry. And he knew from firsthand experience that Jesus wasn't the type of religious leader people were expecting. So his genealogy wasn't a recipe for a Messiah. One cup King David, one cup Abraham, a couple tablespoons and some other heroes... That's not the case that he's building here, but he's giving us a surprising mix of embarrassing sinners, outcasts, and failures. Several names that make no sense by the standards of the day or any day that you're trying to make a good impression. If you are trying to highlight the worthiness or have an airtight Uh, Argument for the credentials of your candidate. You highlight only the best of the best. Here, Matthew actually does the opposite. He goes out of his way to bring attention to parts of history that weren't necessary to what he reportedly would be doing in bringing this genealogy. Um, And parts that any Jew would probably like to have kept from the record not have front and center matt mentioned examples uh, such as abraham's his unfaithfulness on friday we're going to start with judah in this line it says when judah and his brothers and and kind of goes on when, when that's mentioned none of which i mean first of all you don't have to mention the brothers at all They weren't part of the line. You're just adding them in, kind of giving a qualifier who this is. Make sure you have the right Judah. Um, But they weren't required for this list. But when we hear Judah and his brothers, who do most of us think about? Our minds go to probably the more famous of the brothers, Joseph, who had several chapters of um, Genesis devoted to him and his story more than anyone else. Um, He seems like a fine addition to Christ's lineage. After all, he, he was a savior not only to his family but to all of Egypt. Yet he wasn't the brother that God chose for Christ's lineage. Instead, it was Judah. What do we know of Judah? Well, Judah, he was the brother that convinced the other brothers not to kill Joseph but instead to sell him into slavery. Now, did he do this out of the bigness of his heart? No, it says he did this because we can actually profit from this. We can get something out of this transaction. We can benefit by selling him, at least having some coin in our hands as we see him sent away. Judah's a real winner in that light. Yet his story gets even worse, which is a fact that Matthew focuses or forces us to acknowledge when he inserts Tamar into the genealogy. Now again, only men were legally counted when tracing lineage. So when a woman is introduced, it really jumps out because, again, she doesn't need to be part of this at all. She doesn't need to be mentioned This sticks out. It's very noticeable, as he mentions, by whom uh, the next in line was born. And what we know of Tamar, the Cliff's Note semi-PG-ish version, is that Tamar was Judah's oldest son's wife. His son died, and she married the next son, who also died. Judah promised his youngest son to Tamar in marriage, as was the custom, so that she would be protected and provided for. And he told her to live as a widow until his youngest son would be of age to marry her and provide for her and care for her. But thinking that Tamar might be the reason his sons were dying, Judah never gave his youngest son in marriage. He withheld that, which left her vulnerable childless and without a future in their society, really unkind, less than honorable move on Judah's part. So Tamar disguised herself, seduced Judah by pretending to be a cult prostitute on the road that he was traveling, which reveals some really morally bankrupt and disgusting things about Judah. Not only did he visit a prostitute in this instance and have a system for one of his friends to handle the payment and take care of that afterwards, but Tamar knew his reputation enough to know that this might work. She became pregnant, which caused quite a stir when discovered because she was supposed to be living as a widow, which meant chaste until... Judah's youngest son would be given to her. But because that wasn't happening and she went this route, it reveals this um, sordid affair. And what we see when this was discovered is that upstanding citizen and leader, Judah, declared she should be burned alive as punishment. Let that sink in for a minute. Here's a guy who sold his own brother to profit from it. Kept it a secret for a couple decades. Defrauded his daughter-in-law. And is himself in all likelihood a serial adulterer. Yet when something comes up, he has no mercy for someone else's scandal. Of course we know the rest of the story that Tamar produced the signet ring the staff of the man by whom she was pregnant which of course was Judah and then that brought a reprieve to her situation and Perez was born into the line of Jesus what a creepy revolting shameful chapter Yet, Matthew clearly pauses right here specifically so we don't miss the inclusion of Perez's mom-slash-sister-in-law. Yuck! Two verses later, Matthew doubles down and inserts Rahab into the lineup. Again, women are going to jump out every time because they wouldn't normally be included in an account like this. So, Rahab, of course, is another name that instantly rings of potential scandal, because hers is a name that often gets a a, a title, a characteristic associated with it. You know how this works? Some people acquire a title or a trait that sticks with them the rest of their lives, and even beyond through history. So we can think of different examples, like John the... Baptist, right, Jack the Ripper, Conan the Barbarian, right, Jabba the, Hunt, yes, Rahab had a title that often followed, Rahab the Harlot, or Rahab the Prostitute. She hid the Israelites' spies before the destruction of Jericho, but, but the fact that Again, Matthew is pausing and drawing attention to a Canaanite prostitute in Christ's genealogy had to have his first-century audience scratching their heads. Because under the law, which had just recently been minted, I mean, the ink was barely dry on the law when the Israelites reached Jericho. Under the law... Uh, Canaanites weren't supposed to be existing in the law because they were coming to take their land and wipe them out. And then a prostitute had a penalty of death for it. So doubly, she should not have existed within the community of God's people, of the Israelites, let alone within the bloodline of the Messiah. Ruth is then mentioned in the same verse. We know Ruth's story. She's certainly commendable. Except that Ruth is a Moabite. A people group that was not allowed to even worship in the Jewish temple. Again, by law. Meaning that in back-to-back generations, Gentile women are part of the lineage. Some would say diluting or corrupting that lineage from pure Jewish blood. That would seem to be what would be more appropriate for the line of Christ. Then the next verse, finally, we arrive at David, the star of this list, the one declared you know, that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one whom we know about his ancestor or his um, progeny, that they will sit on the throne forever. The great King David, the man after God's own heart, to whom was promised that forever king. Except that Matthew doesn't let us get too caught up in David's admirable exploits either when he mentions him as the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Just squeeze a little lemon juice into that cut, why don't we? I mean, again, Matthew didn't have to mention her at all. He could have, if he was going to, just mentioned her name, Bathsheba. I mean, everybody knows her name, but Matthew has a point to make. Pride of the nation, this David, who had one of his own generals murdered. One of the mighty men that came to David's aid while he was on the run from Saul. By every detail we are given, Uriah the Hittite was an honorable man. Yet David raped his wife and had him murdered to cover up his lust and selfishness. David is remembered for many heroic and godly deeds, yet Matthew wants to make sure his readers remember this deed as well. This deed that many would like to forget about their nation's favorite son. This deed that brought so much turmoil to the rest of David's reign. I mean, is, is Matthew just unaware how this resume writing thing is supposed to work? He doesn't even wait for the interview to start spouting off the applicant's greatest weaknesses. Uh, Does he know that they're supposed to craft creative ways to sidestep such issues? I mean, come on, Matthew. Including or validating women, that's one thing. But you're taking this in a whole other direction. This is a bit uncomfortable. Matthew might respond, "They're, they're part of the story. Yeah, but but you don't have to tell the whole story. I mean, you left other names and parts of the story out of the story. To that, I think Matthew might say you're right. It's more than that they are part of the story. It's because they're the point of the story. Matthew is about to give his account of the man who turned his world and nearly everything he thought he knew about God upside down. Let's remember for a moment Matthew's personal history with the Jesus he is writing about. Yes, Matthew was one of the 12 disciples, but he wasn't a natural fit with all the other disciples. Before following Jesus, Matthew had a title associated with him as well. He was a publican, a tax collector, which meant a lot more than just having a job with the IRS. In that day, it meant that he was an Israelite who paid to have the opportunity to work for the occupying Roman army to extract taxes from his countrymen making himself wealthy as he did so. Considered the lowest of the low, tax collectors had their own disdained label among, alongside sinners as the most despicable in Jewish society. They were considered enemies of Israel and even God himself because they were sellouts, actively engaged in undermining his kingdom's advancement. They, they could buy protection from Rome, but socially they were irredeemable. No one wanted to have anything to do with them. They were hated, despicable members of society, seen as sellouts and traitors. Let's flip a few pages to Matthew 9, where Matthew tells of the day that Everything changed for him. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, in this day, this would have been a scandal in its own right, there's no mistaking who Matthew was. It wasn't like Jesus just bumped into him on the street or in the market and said, hey, join my, my traveling group. Come on, you look like a nice guy. Follow us. Matthew was on the job, sitting at the tax collector's booth. He was in the act of extorting his countrymen and serving their oppressive enemy, When Jesus said, Follow me. Jesus knew exactly who he was and yet called him all the same. And Matthew got up and followed because Jesus offered something Rome never could acceptance and relationship with God himself. Matthew followed, and Jesus proceeds to invite himself to dinner at Matthew's house and continues in verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is, in their world, guilt by association. You make yourself dirty by hanging out with these dirty people. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew's entire experience of relating with Jesus was built upon this reality. That Jesus didn't come for the religious and the self-righteous. He came for the sick, the sinners, the outcast. Matthew personally experienced Jesus drawing near to those that had drawn away from God or those who had been pushed away. Jesus welcomed them. Outsiders were brought in, the sick healed, the rejected accepted, the unclean cleansed. In the midst of Matthew actively pursuing what everyone hated about him, Jesus said, follow me. Come, be my disciple. Not because he was honorable or desirable, but because he was sick and in need of the physician. This genealogy that Matthew begins with, it isn't a brag list. It's a curated list meant to bring out some of the misdeeds, the outsiders, some of the most embarrassing aspects of Christ's lineage. It's not about instilling confidence in a righteous bloodline of the Messiah, but upending the idea of who can be included in in his family, and in his ministry. Matthew includes messy, complicated, and straight-up awful examples because he knows from personal experience that they are the point of why Jesus came. Some need to see this because they know they are far from God, but they don't realize how he has drawn near to them. And others need to see this because they're self-righteous and don't realize they've missed the point. Matthew showed his readers that Jesus fit the requirements and fulfilled the the scriptures regarding the Messiah. And what was foretold about him, while at the same time, seeking to reorient the presuppositions and misconceptions of the religious and the sinner. He did this both for those good religious Jews and he did this for his friends, sinners and tax collectors like him that were partying at his house, marginalized and cast off by the rest of the society, those who weren't religious or respectable. Matthew wants them to know that they too have a place in this story. What Matthew discovered... When Jesus called him from a place no one else could stand him. What he discovered, following him around for three years, seeing him heal the sick, cast out demons, perform miracles, listening to him teach, watching him interact with religious people and with children and sinners. Standing near the cross being in the upper room when the resurrected Christ stood among them. Before he watched him ascend into heaven, what Matthew discovered was that his own sin was worse than anyone imagined. But God's love was greater than he ever could have dreamed. With these opening words of the New Testament, Matthew wants his readers to pause for a moment and say, wait, what? You're including them? Because he wants to mess with those that think they already know how God's stories are supposed to go. Jesus' kingdom flips on its head what everyone thinks about religion and what it looks like to make our way to God. Jesus came to reveal God's completely unexpected way to righteousness was through relationship with him. Relationship through him. Because the only way to be accepted by him is to realize we don't deserve to be with him. Only then will we see and appreciate all that he has done for us, to be with us. Only then will the peace declared by the angels flood your heart and their glad tidings be realized as amazingly good news. Not because of what you have achieved, but because of how completely you've been accepted and loved. That's the reason for Christmas. And from the very opening of his account of Jesus' life, even before he gets to the angel's announcement or the baby in a manger, Matthew wants his readers to know that this story is different than the religious story they thought they knew. Every family's dysfunction, your own personal messiness, and worst moments, they aren't Embarrassing episodes to be hidden or denied. They're the reason for the season. They're the reason he came. They are what qualify us for the Savior's ministry. Jesus came from a messy family to show that every person in every family can have a place in his forever family. Judah, Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, David, and Uriah's wife. They aren't just part of the story. They are the point of the story. The story of the Savior, the physician, sent not for the healthy, but for the sick, on mission to seek and save the lost. Oh, as we just sang, Oh, come, all you unfaithful. Oh, come, let us adore him. The band can come and, and let's pray. Lord, how marvelous the good news that you came not for the perfect, not for the righteous. for none of us were you came for the sick you came for the lost you came for the sinner the outcast those pushed aside you came you came to be a savior you came to rescue and redeem oh lord would you fill our gaze how marvelous you are amaze us for you have been so good Lord would we not just fall into the religious trappings of this season but would we see how unexpected and amazing your good news is let's stand and sing together